I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. It has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have periled my life and reputation and reason. It has been the desperate attempt to escape from torturous memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness, and a dread that I will one day embrace the void. Was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 218 of Embrace the Void, where we are chemically dependent on you. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are discussing addiction, both social and chemical. So, let's take a trip. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Chris Boutet, host of The Rewired Soul and author of the book Cancelled Inside YouTube Cancel Culture. Chris, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, everybody in the void. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We had a fun chat over on Rewired Soul a little while ago, um, and I wanted to get you on here to, to you know switch things around and pick your brain a little bit because I think you've got some interesting perspectives on a couple of the issues that I'm often harping on on this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. I I haven't been interviewed for a while, so this will this will be fun. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> right, you, you get in the habit of just asking questions and then sitting back and making somebody else do the work. Yeah, exactly. Yep. No, I totally understand. So, why don't you help folks who aren't familiar with you a little bit? What sort of background do you bring, and why are you ending up making content? So, yeah, I have a, a long, extensive history, but basically my background in content uh, is um, my mom's an alcoholic. She's been sober for, geez, I think 15 years now, but she got sober when I was 20. She helped me get sober when I was 27. Um, and yeah, since getting sober, you know, when I got sober, I had no health insurance. I had no money. I destroyed my life. I wasn't even allowed to see my son. I had like a 10% chance of living. Um, fortunately my mom was back up on her feet. She got me into a sober living house. It was like 500 bucks a month. I went through 12 step meetings, but, uh, but yeah, I stayed sober. I got my life back. My son's in my life. He's in the room, right? Other room right now playing video games. Uh, and, and my life's, my life's amazing today. But, um, you know, after 
After about three years, I started working in a drug and alcohol rehab facility, basically like peer support because I'm a college dropout. Um, so I don't have any credentials or anything. So it was basically peer support and I love to learn. So I would teach other addicts in groups like what I've learned from my own experience, what the science says. But at a certain point when I started making content was, uh, it was for a few reasons. One, the rehab I was working at super high end here in Las Vegas. It was like 30 grand for a month if you don't mm -hmm. have health insurance. And uh, so aside from that, I also felt like there wasn't enough conversation around addiction, mental health and stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make content. I can do what I'm doing at the rehab, put it on YouTube, help people for free, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what got me into starting content. My YouTube channel blew up around mental health, but we'll probably go into it later. Uh, eventually I got mm -hmm. canceled and that got me really interested in, uh, you know, human behavior, um, psychology, moral philosophy, other aspects mm -hmm. of philosophy. I just, I, when, when I, when I had the internet coming after me in 2019, I just, I wanted to learn as much as I could about human nature. And I just found my curiosity. And now I read hundreds of books and have authors come on my podcast and talk to people. Yeah. So <laughs> great. So yeah, so lots, lots to cover there. I think lots of things that are going to be sort of relevant, I think, to our audience's voidy interests. So yeah. let's, let's just start, we'll just go in sequential order there, right? So I think you started off talking about the addiction stuff, which is mm -hmm. of particular interest to me for um, lots of reasons. I have my own sort of um, philosophical perspectives around the issues of free will and moral luck and things mm. like that. And I'm, I'm curious, I guess, to hear a little bit more about what you were saying in terms of what you feel like helped you with getting sober and what is the sort of information you try to convey to other individuals in the programs that you've worked in? So one of my things now is, and I say it all the time in my writing, like uh, I even said it in the piece I wrote today, the hill I am willing to die on is the, the myth of meritocracy, right? Okay. And I think part of it is because when I got sober, I was like, I was going to three 12 step meetings a day, right? Like three meetings a day, I was in it. I got a sponsor. I was working the steps. I was writing, surrounded myself with sober people. Uh, I, I moved back to Vegas after about a year with like $200 in my pocket, worked my ass off, got a job, all these other things, and I stayed sober. So I was like, you work hard. You could do whatever you want, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, 2016, when Trump got elected, that was really like when I was like, hey, let me see what the hell's going on with politics and stuff. And as I got it, uh, got more into like social justice and stuff, I realized that meritocracy is bullshit, right? So when it mm -hmm. comes to free will, the decisions we make and the hard work and working in a treatment center for three years, uh, I realized how lucky I was, right? Like there, I've worked with thousands of addicts over the years and I can't tell you how many of them have a family who is not supportive in any way. They're like, mm -hmm. addiction is a choice. You did this, you're making bad decisions, and the family completely neglects the childhood trauma they put that person through, right? They neglect all those things. Or there's uh, families who don't understand addiction and people would come back from rehab. I had one guy who came back from rehab and his family threw him a party, right? Not just alcohol, but meth and all sorts of shit, right? Yes. So anyways, getting back to the luck factor, like how lucky am I that my mom was seven years sober not only was she seven years sober, but she has a PhD in psychology. She's a clinical director at a rehab clinic. That's the person I had helped me get sober. So mm -hmm. 
when I started looking back at it, I'm like, no, this, you know, yeah, sure. I did put in hard work, right? But I was given opportunities that a lot of other people don't have. And now I kind of see that in the broader spectrum of, you know, poverty and work and, you know, all sorts of things and even even education and stuff like that. Yeah. So this is very interesting to me because I'm currently like way deep into a bunch of research about the effects of changes in belief about things like meritocracy free will moral responsibility all these things and and like the impacts mm -hmm. on motivation in particular um and so mm -hmm. like some people i think would read some of the data and be concerned that if someone like yourself were suddenly convinced that like that meritocracy stuff was bullshit that like that could be a quick road back to sort of relapse for you um mm -hmm. so i'm curious when you were going through that sort of um, awakening with regard to meritocracy or something like that, right? This this change in perspective. Um, how did that interact with your sort of ongoing process about dealing with addiction? Do you feel like it um, changed it, made it easier, made it harder? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a quote, someone brought it up on my podcast the other day in a conversation. There's that quote, like, you know, uh, about being able to hold two conflicting ideas in your head, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something, you know, I, 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 I love learning about and reading about cognitive dissonance, because I think it's just fascinating and hilarious, right? But right. anyways, Perfect. we have to be able to, to hold these two competing ideas, you know, and I, I've, I remind myself of that constantly. I have to remember that, hey, there's a certain amount of hard work that you can do that can get you somewhere, but then you also have a certain amount of responsibility. And I'll tell you this right now, as a father, it's something that I have to think about even more, right? I uh, I tell this story often. I had my son watch the uh, the famous uh, college admission scandal documentary, right? Uh, oh, I had him watch it. He's 12 years old. He's not going to college for like six years, but I wanted him to watch that because he is, you know, I don't know if it's genetics or what. This is something else I've been curious about when it comes to motivation, right? Like he works hard. Like we don't pressure him. Like we're not the type of parents who are like, get good grades, but he works hard. He will, he's mm -hmm. a gamer. He games his face off. He will always make sure his homework's done before he touches a video game. He just got into National Junior Honor Society. But anyways, I wanted him to know that, listen, no matter how hard you work, there's a chance that your spot might get taken by someone who has more money and more resources than you do, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not an excuse to not work hard. So when it comes to sobriety and what your question is, I know, I know that, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of luck involved, certain amount of advantage, but that doesn't take away from my personal responsibility. And it's, it's really hard to teach that to people because there's a lot of people who get sober or even people like if we just eliminate alcohol and drugs, think about, think about depression, think about anxiety, think about all the mental illness, think about all the homelessness because of mental illness, how many people don't have mental health resources, but mm. at the same time, how much access do they have? You know what I mean? So it's hard to think about the improvements we need in, in this country while also saying, hey, but here's what you do have and here's what you should do work with what you have. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's tricky that sort of two, like holding those two things in your mind. I think that is one sort of approach that some folks will try to deal with when they're trying to make sense of, yeah, it does seem like luck is really like running rampant in a lot of places, but we still need to sign personal responsibility or talk about personal responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. And I, 
I, I guess I've gotten to a place now where I think it's possible to talk about sort of what you ought to do while sort of fully acknowledging that what you're going to do, who you are, all of these things is still sort of entirely this product of luck. Um, and I, I also, I wonder, you know, I, I want to mention, I, I don't talk about this a lot, but I've also had personal experience and family experience with addiction. And mm -hmm. I think my personal experience has, it feels like it has shaped possibly, you know, my perspectives about issues like free will and luck. Like it makes me feel more cognizant of not being in control of my own inner world or something like that. Um, and I wonder mm -hmm. if, you know, you find that to be sort of similarly true um, and, you know, how we could sort of acknowledge that even your ability to have personal responsibility is sort of a part of this without mm -hmm. sort of collapsing the whole um, motivational house of cards, as it were. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, the way, the way my mind gets, maybe it's because I'm, you know, recovering at it. I obsess on stuff. And for a while I was obsessing on free will in the justice system. So mm -hmm. I reached out, I'm like, uh, to Greg Caruso, right. Legal philosopher. Sure. I'm like, yo, want to come on my podcast? So he came on and we talked about it and, and yeah, like there's certain aspects when I, when I sit and think too much about free will, I feel like I'm going insane, right? Because it's very tricky right? and it's sure. very difficult because, um, for example, in psychology, uh, in the world of addiction, there's the biopsychosocial model, right? So mm -hmm. we got biology, there's a certain amount of genetics, okay? So uh, there's, uh, by, by luck of a place I worked, we were able to get genetic testing and uh, it was also verified through my grandma. We have the the gene associated with addiction. Makes sense. My mom, uh, my uh, her twin sister is also in recovery, right? So there's the biological uh, factor. There's genetic component, right? Then you have uh, the psychological aspect, right? What if my brain just isn't wired correctly, you know? Mm -hmm. Then you have the uh, the social aspect. You have the environment. Things that can increase your chances of abusing substances are poverty, your environment, childhood trauma, abuse, right? So there's all these different moving parts is what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. then the question is, how much personal responsibility do we put on that person? Because then I start thinking of, you know, how we, how we learn, right? We learn from positive and negative reinforcement. So mm -hmm. I've had quite a few guests on when we talk about just decriminalizing drugs. Uh, I've had conversations about harm reduction. And as many people have I had come on, talk about harm reduction and uh, decriminalization and just like, hey, let people safely use heroin. I have an upcoming episode with Dr. Carl Hart. He's like the big dude mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, all that stuff. But at the same time, I've seen people, I've seen people, people die a lot of people die from like hey i'm just going to use heroin responsibly uh, responsibly and they die mm -hmm. you know what i mean so right. it's it's so it's so tricky because the person the individual what i've learned is that you have to come to a place where like me i'm a i'm a recovering drug addict in las vegas i know that if i take one i can't stop and i know that because i've tried it a million times you know mm -hmm. so so at some point you have to take away that person's option until they get a clear enough head to realize that. And then once you gave them that opportunity, maybe some type of punishment is involved because addiction doesn't just affect the person. It affects mm -hmm. the family. There's a chance of uh, criminality 
right? Mm -hmm. A lot of um, a lot of robberies, uh, assaults come from a result of being drunk or high. So it's not just about the individual, and that's where the free will and justice conversation. I'm kind of interested because sometimes mm -hmm. you got to remove that person from the environment so they don't harm others. You know? Yeah, and I think that's totally like reconcilable with my perspective that like really it is kind of just luck all the way down in the sense and, and this is another thing that i've been finding in the research is that people tend to think that you know you should have a reduction in retributive forms of justice like it doesn't make sense to punish an addict for being an addict right yeah. like what it does make sense to do is for consequentialist reasons right punish them to um you know motivate them not to do that thing or to motivate other people not to do that thing and i think you know you can have a view that like we don't have free will and therefore certain drugs should be not accessible to people because they are too addictive and too harmful right another mm -hmm. drug should be legally accessible to people because people can get addicted to them but like they're not super harmful when they get addicted to them yeah um right like i think for example i think there's been a funny conversation around marijuana that like there was a time <laughs> people would say you couldn't get addicted to weed right and I just think that's just a wildly implausible claim. Like, I think it's obviously yeah. clear that people can get addicted to weed. What we mean is that you can get addicted to weed and mostly it won't ruin your life the way that heroin will ruin your life or something like that. Yeah. So I, uh, so I live here in Nevada, uh, even though I am 100% abstinent, haven't touched a single alcohol, uh, a drink of alcohol, no drugs. Uh, I voted to legalize weed here in Vegas. We have, uh, dispensaries mm -hmm. all over town and everything like that, but I don't know if it's because I'm in Las Vegas, but to say weed can't be addictive is insane because you go to a gas station at three in the morning and you see people at a video poker machine going like this, right? Mm -hmm. If gambling can be addictive, if food can be addictive, if shopping can be addictive, if sex can be addictive, weed can be addictive too. You know what I mean? Right. But like you said, there's, there's different severities, right? So uh, that's where I see a big issue with the conversation and pretty much every conversation is you get the most extreme people on each side, right? There's people mm -hmm. who think that weed is going to destroy your life. And then there's the other people who's like, weed can't be habit forming. It's like, Hey, how about we come to reality and we have a real conversation like adults, you know, <laughs> like right. that's, that's why I think so many, so many conversations, even like in the political world and stuff like that, we don't get them solved because you have two people on complete opposite extremes. And it's like, neither mm -hmm. is based on reality, you know? Yeah, and I, we're going to talk a little bit here in a second about that challenge of trying to address that while not slipping into the kind of bullsiderism that I, I don't think either mm -hmm. of us are interested in. But I want to talk a little bit more about your podcast first um, mm -hmm. and, and, and the conversation that you have. So the concept, for folks who aren't familiar, is you read you have you have authors on and you actually read their entire book first which is you know a novel and impressively uh labor intensive approach <laughs> um and i believe you've read you said close to like 300 books on this uh, you know for this kind of thing at this point i don't think none of you necessarily had 300 people on yet no. right? <laughs> um but you're working on it right and i'm curious first of all at like a meta level very big picture level how do you feel like you are different than the person you were when you started reading all those books um so i have become so much more intellectually humble right uh the more you know the more you learn uh because i i strictly read nonfiction. i've read i mm -hmm. I, I had cat uh on who wrote a phenomenal uh, fiction book that was like the only one i read she was the only fiction author i've ever had mm -hmm. but anyways mm -hmm. the uh, i love nonfiction. i love to learn i'm a college dropout and i think it's just amazing that 
there are people who have spent their life researching something or they're an expert in something. I have journalists on, people who spend hours or years on a topic and then they put that in a book that I can read, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is just awesome. So anyway, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, and yeah, like I, it's helped me be more intellectually humble, but even more so I've, I, it helps me understand a person's train of thought, depending on the type of book it is, right? Like I'm sure we'll discuss like John McWhorter and stuff like that, but I had a completely different view of him before I read his book where I don't disagree or where I don't agree with him on a hundred percent of everything. He's not who I thought he was. I also read Dave Rubin's book, which uh, made me want to jump off a building. But wow. yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's commitment. Uh, but you know, bit, sir. yeah, it, I, I just think it's important in this world. Like everybody's like, oh, we're just in a, in a world of headline readers, right? So the best thing I could do to be the opposite of a headline reader is to sit down and read someone's entire book. I read Gad Sad's book too, which was also oh, right there. Yeah. <laughs> so so you that's and, something. You and Chris Kavanaugh have a vicious masochism streak um do you actually read read or are these often like audiobooks for you so uh yeah it's it's audio i have a lot of physical copies just that get sent to me but it's it's audio i am the slowest reader ever i'm right like if i if i sit down with a piece of paper or a book like it'll take i'll go back my mind waters uh but uh yeah audio i listen at 2x speed it took me a a minute like at first i was like this is crazy right but now if i listen to something like even podcasts if i listen to podcasts at normal speed it sounds like they were hit by by a tranquilizer everyone's drunk right yeah yeah um a lot of a lot of the publishers uh a lot of them don't have audiobooks ready for review so they send Mm. me pdfs i have an app called speechify which converts it and you can up the speed so yeah i do audio but um i wrote a piece about this because everybody's like how do you read so many books i listen to them in my car i listen to them on my you know i go for a two-mile walk every morning when i go to the grocery store have my earphones in when I'm doing chores around the house, uh, when I'm doing tedious work that doesn't involve too much cognitive effort, I'm listening. When I'm playing video games, I'm listening. So a lot of my, you know, that quiet time is filled with stuff in my ears. So I'm, you know, learning and taking notes and all that stuff. I was wondering because like I... I've similarly succumbed to the text to speech. Like I had resisted it for a while and the robot voice and whatnot, but like, there's just no other way to get through like the grad school reading that I have to get done and like do anything else. And like, you know, our puppy is constantly demanding attention. So like I can play with him while listening to a podcast, but I can't, you know, I can't sit there reading while playing with him or something. So, and I'm, I'm, I like you really struggle and it's, I think it's gotten worse too in the COVID era where I just like, it is very hard to concentrate on sitting and reading something, but I can manage yeah. to listen um, and do all right. So yeah, it's really interesting. So amongst your 300 strong books or so that you've read, are there ones in particular that stick out in your mind that like, if you had infinite time, those would be the ones you'd re-listen to over and over? Uh, there are There are definitely books that stand out for different reasons. I think, uh, you know, like one book that I, I think was just like a huge aha moment for me was The Righteous Mind from Jonathan Haidt. Um, even though there's like uh, philosophical debates around his idea of like, uh, uh, you know, the moral foundations theory and stuff, mm-hmm. his book, like where I will give his book credit for, it was the first book that I read, which was by pure chance, because I'm sure other books have mentioned this, where it helped me understand that a conservative person from the South was raised different, 
raised differently than me, is thinking differently than me, and it's helped me be more empathetic. So I've read that book, you know, a couple times just to get back into that. Sorry, mode. wait, were you calling Height a conservative person from the South? No, 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 oh. no. He he helped open oh, okay, my okay. eyes. <laughs> Sorry, I just realized. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Because no. there's some there's some debate to be had, obviously, right? Not I'm not thinking yeah. about South necessarily, but like debates over his politics. But yeah. I think right, he obviously self identifies as a liberal, I believe. Yeah, like I could have just, you know, it, it was the, just the timing and the place. I could have came across like a random article that was like, hey, somebody in the South, don't forget that they probably went to church their whole life and believes in things differently than you do since you grew up on the West Coast and are pretty, you know, uh, secular and all that stuff. So his book just opened my eyes to that and it helps me mm-hmm. get my wheels turning a little bit. Um, also with his uh, his theory of uh, 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 moral uh, dumbfounding, moral dumbfounding oh, okay. where, yeah. Um, so that one's, that one's an interesting one to me. I just recently reread, uh, a really underrated book, which is mistakes were made, but not by me. It's by Carol Tavris and somebody else. Hmm. And it's all about cognitive dissonance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I recently reread a book called messengers also very underrated. Uh, it's about why we listen to who we listen to, right? Like why, why does a podcast have a certain following and it goes in and it's like based on their status, based on their education, based on their looks or whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, I think the entire topic of trust is very interesting. Like why do we trust who we trust? Right. Mm -hmm. Every day when I get in my car and I, cause I have to drive across town to pick up my son for the weekends. And I think it's amazing that I'm in Las Vegas ton of people are drunk driving right and i have to just trust that the people around me aren't just going to crash into me but then you think when you go to a doctor we blindly trust the the medications they recommend i'm somebody who was a victim of the opioid crisis so i like reading books um about uh why we listen to who we listen to so it's it's difficult i'd have a lot of books if i had to bring them with me (laughs) no i mean there's an interesting sort of bit of connections there especially between the like trust stuff and the righteous mind um, stuff I find it really fascinating. Righteous mind, even more than like moral landscapes, it seems like yeah. is a is like a big book for a lot of people in the way that you're describing in this sort of and it's mm-hmm. you know like the thing is obviously I have serious qualms with height. I I think it's pretty absurd that he's putting his name to this University of Austin uh, debacle and waiting and that's like, an interesting thing yeah that's and like on. you know I think coddling of the of the American mind is not a good book and like you know like contributes to a moral panic about things like cancel culture the righteous mind on the other hand i think is a more complicated conversation to be had and like i don't think it's a book that should just be sort of thrown out even though i strongly disagree with some of his conclusions about Mm -hmm. the conservative palette versus the liberal moral palette and right his claims i also think that he in, in claiming to be a pluralist slides into cultural relativism, which is kind of ironic, right? Because he's yeah. a big, you know, big picked up on by folks who are really anti-cultural relativism. But like, if you read his description of his experience in a patriarchal society when he was doing anthropological work and how he mm. has this kind of pluralist turn, as he calls it, it kind of reads as like, well, what I realize is that like, it's okay for some people in some cultures to like oppress women. Right. And like that, yeah. that, that sounds a little bit more like cultural relativism to me. Um, so I just think, but I, I also have to acknowledge like that there are a lot of things in there that are valuable to lots of people who might not get access to those sorts of things otherwise. 
Right. Yeah, it it basically that book, the reason why it'll always come to mind is it opened the door to me to a bunch of other books. Like I started mm-hmm. I, I read the book uh Moral Politics. Uh there's another book called Moral Tribes, right? Right. And, Moral Tribes, I think, is a good response piece. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a ton of other books out there. Like I said, I think uh, going back to the whole idea of luck, it's like that book came to me at the right place, right time, opened the mm-hmm. door to different topics because that's what a lot of books do for me is they cite uh, different authors, different researchers, and then I take those notes down and then I go down those rabbit holes. You know what I mean? So that's mm-hmm. that's why that particular book stands out for me. I've actually been really meaning to reread The Coddling of the American Mind because when I got canceled on YouTube, I grabbed that book. I'm like, yeah, these, these freaking snowflakes and all this stuff. Right. <laughs> and that was, that was like two and a half, almost three years ago. And I've been wanting to reread it because when you come back to a book a couple of years later, you're in a different mindset and stuff like that. So I've been thinking about doing it and see how much I agree with, how much I don't agree with, because um, yeah. I've definitely shifted back because I think one place where you and I connect and why I had you on my podcast is I do definitely see the moral panic that goes on with the, with the wokeness. And I'm like, whoa whoa let's we all need to slow down just a little bit yeah and i think i i think it would be possible to read your work and like get a kind of or listen to your work right and get a kind of like bullsiderism out of it um and i do i do worry a little bit that you know when you talk to someone like mcwarder there's a bit of a credulity towards his thesis about wokeness as a religion but i do also get the impression that it seems like you are critical at the moment at least of some of this um like you fall into this kind of growing category it seems like of get a grip centrists right who like don't think that wokeness is perfect and think that it needs to be criticized but think that like the amount of criticism that's going in that direction might be you know a bit excessive so but like to get us there i think this is an interesting arc so i want to talk first about your cancellation a little bit can you explain Mm -hmm. what what sort of experience you had and i assume you know let's do this in the most sort of steel body way possible of uh you know what were the people who were upset with you Where, where can you feel like you understand now where they were coming from yeah so uh for anybody listening if you want uh a a good picture of it not only did i write the book but i i had a conversation with moral philosopher uh kurt gray who disagrees with jonathan Haidt. we actually go into some of his criticisms of Haidt towards the end but anyways um i i do think that the only people that this makes sense to is anybody who has an understanding of utilitarianism right uh okay so so when i started my youtube channel most of our audience so you're good yeah so when I started my my YouTube channel, the goal is how do I how do I help as many people as possible with mental health and addiction, right? The YouTube algorithm isn't a fan of talking about overdose deaths and depression and suicide and stuff like that, right? Well, one day my girlfriend and a friend, they show me some YouTube drama stuff. There's a gigantic YouTube drama community. All they do is talk about YouTube drama. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I I, I would imagine, I always think about who the audience is, right? I'm like, who is watching this? Who is watching this celebrity YouTube gossip? Right. You're watching about toxic relationships, backstabbing, substance abuse, driving while intoxicated, all these things. And you're just watching it. Right. And you're not getting anything out of it. And how many of those people are living a terrible life and there's they're just escaping through watching this this kind of celebrity nonsense? So I sat there and thought, I'm like, okay, what if I can pull lessons from this drama? Right. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, the biggest this is example get really the, ironic here in a second, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was like, so a great example is someone like Trisha Paytas. If anybody's been on YouTube, might've heard of Trisha Paytas. She's, uh, she's known for starting controversies. She's had substance abuse problems at the time. She was in an abusive relationship. I have a history of abusive relationships from my addiction. So what I would do is there'd be drama around Trisha Paytas's relationship, for example, I'd make mm -hmm. a clickbait headline, make people think it's a drama video. They'd come in. I would explain the situation. I would say how I can relate to it and then say how I overcame it. Here's how I got out of a toxic relationship. Here's how I dealt with it. Da, 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 da. Right. And my channel exploded with this method. Um, uh, I, I could, I could do that with someone like the Kardashians. I could do it with a TV show, like, uh, the TV show, uh, 13 reasons why I did some commentary on that. Like what lessons, what real life lessons can we pull from it? And it worked, but it really worked with YouTube drama and hmm. my channel exploded. Everybody loved it. They're like, Chris, like I had people coming and saying, Chris, you, you helped encourage me to go to therapy. You encouraged me to go to treatment. You encouraged me to talk to my doctor about medications, right? Because maybe a YouTuber would make a video about, hey, I started this medication or, oh, hey, I refused to take medication. I'd make a video about it with my opinions, right? Mm -hmm. Well, at a certain point, the best way I can explain it is it went from being okay to not being okay, right? Mm -hmm. So from the utilitarian aspect of it, I was like, okay, so you have you have bad examples on YouTube, right? Like think about, think about uh, Paris Hilton in her heyday, right? Okay. And the influence she has on young people. Mm -hmm. Don't you want someone to come out and say, hey, this isn't great? So that's the way I thought about it from the utilitarian perspective is, this is, I have, a, I have tens of thousands of subscribers at the time. This person has millions. I'm punching up, right? They're making this public. I'm not stalking them or anything. I'm not violating HIPAA. I'm not going in and pulling, you know, their medical records. I'm making a video about it. Well, I, I had plenty of YouTubers say, Hey, Chris, thank you. Like I didn't even recognize what was going on, but then you had people like Trisha Paytas and a few others who did have an issue with it. They're like, I don't like you talking about my life like this. So they don't, they didn't care that these drama channels were mm. using their drama, but since I was taking the mental health or addiction aspect, it became an issue, spiraled out of control. A bunch of rumors started. People uh, claimed that I was uh, trying, I, I was saying that I was a therapist, which I never did. There's no video of me doing that. Uh, people, there was one guy who accused me of uh, having his house swatted. Um, someone else accused me of telling suicidal people in my audience that they should kill themselves just a lot of misinformation came with the outrage mob mm -hmm. and there came a point where i couldn't defend myself um and at the very beginning of it some people did try to defend me because they're like hey i know chris he has no bad intentions he's a good guy but the mob would then attack them so they had to distance themselves from me so i became very alone in that situation and that's mm -hmm. That's kind of the nutshell of it. So there are ethical and moral conversations that I'm definitely willing to have about it, but I do see an issue mm -hmm. with the mob aspect of the internet because it happened to me. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so I'm curious. So it sounds like, you know, you feel like it was mostly overreaction or, or sort of whipped up by, um, you know, this, this particular sort of outrage system. What are the parts where you do feel like 
there was some legitimate concern or something that like you would have been able to perhaps better address if it didn't come in that kind of packaging. So, so one, one thing that I definitely screwed up on was replying, right? Because uh, ego does get in the way when you're getting a bunch, like I was making a full-time living uh, off YouTube. Uh, Like I, I'll be completely transparent. There were months when I was making seven or $8,000, just from YouTube ad revenue. Like that's Mm. insane for a guy like me who's made most like 50 grand in a year, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I knew based on monitoring the drama community, responses get more views and all this other stuff. So when a YouTuber would make a video about me, I do a response, kind of sass him a little. So my ego and pride kind of got in the way a little bit. Definitely a place I shouldn't have gone. Um, so that's one place I screwed up the conversation. There's, there's a conversation to be around, uh, to be had around if, if a celebrity asks you to stop, right? Because the moral question that I have is if, if a person is making videos that could potentially influence young people in a harmful way, and then they ask someone to not make a public opinion about it, is that okay? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, for example, going back to Trisha Paytas, she she was physically abusive and verbally abusive to her boyfriend, and they would put that on the internet, and they have millions of followers, right? The guy mm-hmm. she was dating was part of David Dobrik's crew uh, and the vlog squad, so they're getting millions These of views. These are names that will probably mean very little to our audience, but yeah, yeah. Know, we get the concept. Yeah, so it's it's it, there's a question to be had. Like, if you ask me to stop commenting on it, is it morally okay for you to keep showcasing bad behavior? Does mm-hmm. you, you see what I'm saying? So yeah. that's, that's something that I, I kind of wrestle with. Um, like, should I have stopped if they asked me to? Or should I highlight what I see as an issue and hopefully give people uh, some content that says, hey, this is not a good example of what a healthy relationship looks like? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm not like interested in adjudicating. I think it's what I think is interesting here, actually, to me is – you know, when you described it sort of generically as you were canceled, I think everyone in my audience is going to hear that generally as you were canceled probably for something you did that wasn't woke enough or something like that, right? Like mm-hmm. that I think is the default assumption on cancellation. Yeah. What you're describing doesn't sound like that though, right? It sounds like, you know, there's this outrage machine and you got too close to the machine and got sucked into the gears. So here's here's something that I've been really interested in for years now since it happened to me. Uh, is there's a wokeness in, uh, or quote unquote wokeness, depending on how we want to define it within the realm of mental health and addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you, uh, I'm sure you've come across statistics research that depression is at insanely high rates, anxiety, right. Um, there are certain aspects of, Things like uh, there's a, a dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, which is highly, highly controversial, right? Sure. And there are YouTubers who make content around this, like they have DID and they make content like, oh, one of my alter personality. Anyways, anyways, I see. You're, I see. you're not allowed to talk about it or question it at all, right? And that that is something that has not really hit the mainstream yet, but there is definitely definitely a community around controversial aspects of mental health that they will just shut you down and not allow a conversation. Um, I had to actually remove some of my videos about it because I was just tired. I was like, Mm -hmm. I can't do it. Not going to happen. So, so 
So that's, I think that's where I, I started using I that see. term because I mm -hmm. saw the similar, uh, the relatedness. So just real quick, touching on the John McWhorter thing, when I hear him say the religious aspect, it's, we're not allowed to have a conversation about this. This is my belief. This is a hundred percent certain. That's mm -hmm. what it is. You mm -hmm. see, that's where I hear the religion of this thing coming from. Because if you talk to a evangelical, there's a certain point you're going to get to when you're having, trying to have a logical debate with them where it's like, well, it's because God said so. And that's just not right. <laughs> you know? And that's where I'm like, oh, okay, well, I don't know if we can have a conversation. Yeah. And like, I, I'm sympathetic to that. There is various ideologies that are less tolerant of having conversations right now that I think they would argue that like those conversations have been had and that like, it is not, um, necessary people to keep having the same conversations over and over again. And I, I have mixed feelings about that, obviously, since I have people on who I disagree with and have the conversations as well. Um, but like, I'm also, I think, unsympathetic to using the term religion to describe what you're describing there. Mm. Because I think, first of all, it's insulting to religious people. Because you're basically <laughs> saying what we really mean when we talk about something that's a religion is we mean we talk about people who are ideologically intolerant. But like, mm. I know lots of you know religious people who are willing to have you know, serious conversations about their most deeply held beliefs, right? Yeah. So, like, there's a kind of fanaticism that is being imputed to all religious people when we use that kind of language that, to me, puts that kind of criticism in the realm of, like, lowbrow, new atheist argumentation. Do you know what I mean? So, let me, let me ask you this, because... At, so, I'm a college dropout, you're a grad mm -hmm. student, and here's where I wonder if there's a disconnect do you ever think that they're using some a, a word like I, I i i do understand that language is important but do mm -hmm. you think someone like john mcwater uses religion because it's easier for the analogy to get through to the average person right like right. when we when we get like we can get really nuanced and all this stuff because i i 1000 get where you're coming from but i also you know i used i, I have a background in marketing and branding right sure, sure. And, and sometimes and, they're and like, for sure he's doing it for branding purposes i think that's yeah. very obvious right like it's a polemic. I think he's, he's making a polemical kind of argument and it is more compelling to call it a religion than to call it an ideology or to call it a yeah. worldview or something like that. So, so now, yeah, is that, is that yeah. wrong? May Yeah. Like I can see what you're saying. Like I grew up in Vegas. There's a lot of Mormons. I don't know if a lot of people know that I've grown up around so many Mormons. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, he's Mormon. I grew up with his mm -hmm. family. They were like mm -hmm. my family and he has a gay brother. Right. And they're tolerant of that and everything mm -hmm. like it. So, so, so yeah, like I do get what you're, I definitely get what you're saying. And uh, there's definitely a conversation to be had there. And I want to, I want to mention, I, I think it's not just branding. So I, I don't, I don't know that McWhorter has taken the view of wanting to ban things like critical race theory in schools. I think mm. he's, even though I would argue that he has contributed to the kind of moral panic that is promoting those bills, I think he has remained in opposition to them. But like, Someone like James Lindsay, who's another main person who does the woke as religion argument, is using that word not just to get political, like just, just get punched with regular people. It's because in his you know, twisted way, he thinks that if you can really nail wokeness as a religion, he can get it banned from schools because we have special rules about what religions can do where mm. in our society. Right. So it's not yeah. it's not just a semantic conversation. It has really serious real world implications for these kinds of arguments, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, I, 
I, I, I always try to stay away from like, oh, it can be a slippery slope, but I do see what you're saying because I forgot the example, but Chris Rufo, right? Mm -hmm. The other day that someone, someone pointed out a, an example of Chris Rufo saying like, oh no, we're not trying to do this. And then months later he was trying to do that thing and get things banned. Um, I was listening to a, a, a conversation with a free, uh, a free speech lawyer the other day, and she was talking about how, you know, even though when you think of uh, people trying to limit speech, uh, mm -hmm. it's often blamed on the the people on the left. But if you don't see the conservatives are doing it like crazy, like the stuff going on with CRTs, uh, with CRT and like the books and everything, like mm -hmm. that's that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> like that is the CRT debate is a prime example of why I think cognitive dissonance is such an interesting topic. Yeah. And so I'm curious where you are at this point, because like you had this personal experience and I think a lot of folks who end up in the kind of world that I think you spend a, a fair bit of time in get there through these kind of personal, like I think almost all of them have these grievances of like, and, and like, I don't even mean that as a, you know, a discounting of your, you know, justification. I think, you know, if a lot of people have an experience like that, that doesn't mean nothing. Um, mm -hmm. But like, you know, there's this group of people who have these experiences um, and you talk to quite a few of them on your show. And when I was listening to some of those episodes, I did get the feeling that you were skeptical that like it, that like they were sort of pushing that, like maybe you don't take a kind of both sides view in the way that they do when they're pressed on things. So, man, we could talk about this for hours. Like, uh, you you, you nailed minutes. it <laughs> you you nailed it and i hope everybody read your piece on the tribalism aspect uh of stuff and like the way the conversation's being had and this idea of i don't have a tribe so what you'll what you'll notice in my episodes because i write it down in my notes every single time is i ask people like john mcwarder i had on uh bonnie kerrigan snyder she's with fire organization wrote um undoctrinate about you know indoctrinating our kids and all this other stuff and, you know, I had Benjamin Boyce on and I always ask him, I always ask mm -hmm. him, how big of a problem is this? Right. Because you've mm -hmm. got to understand, I come from a world of addiction. I come from a world of life and death. OK, so when when people are dedicating their careers to talking about, you know, CRT and trans stuff and everything, I'm like, how big of a problem is this? Um, when I asked my son, I said, hey, Dylan, uh, so I'm half black. He's a quarter black. I'm white passing. He's even more white passing. I'm like, hey, Dylan, mm -hmm. you ever been taught in school that you should feel guilty because you're white? He looked at me like I was insane, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, I always ask him, how big of a mm -hmm. problem is it? If you go through all of my guests who are in the anti-woke world, each of them say how it's not a massive problem. Now, I haven't had someone like Chris Rufo or James Lindsay on because I'm sure they would be like, really like hey this is a huge problem but a lot of them say this isn't a major problem but it's something we need to keep an eye on but then we get into the tribalism aspect when you create your brand around this thing you're creating that tribe you're creating that moral panic right mm -hmm. when like that uh, I, I mentioned this in a piece I wrote today where I, I touched on Barry Weiss where I think she's fallen into that right where mm -hmm. uh, going back to my own experience as a youtuber when you start getting a lot of traction, a lot of attention, a lot of views, a lot of downloads, a lot of whatever it is, when you start getting a lot of money, right? You're like, oh, well, I'm just gonna play into this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean all the way in. So the problem is, is that you're, 
you're 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 eliminating this conversation around nuance. Like, go to any of these people's Twitter feeds, mm-hmm. take their last hundred tweets. I guarantee ninety percent of them are all on the same topic. You know, right. they're creating that hardcore tribe. So so me so okay so that was a long way of answering your question. For right. me, for me, everything's on a spectrum, right? Are there are are there people that are these like uh uh you know prime examples of like the social justice woke warriors fuck yeah there are those people but are Mm -hmm. they everywhere are they running through our you know are they taking over like i don't think so right Mm -hmm. are there certain places where a teacher might have said hey if you're white you're bad i'm sure it's happened i'm sure i'm sure there's a teacher who's like taught their kids that unicorns are real or something insane but is it like a, a pandemic i don't think so you know what I mean? Mm. So I'm I'm on the spectrum. Like I like having the conversations, but I'm always asking myself, how big of a problem is this? How much time, resources? Like I only have so much shit I can care about. So mm. you better make a compelling point for me to care about your thing that much. And personally, right now, I don't think uh, teaching kids about racial issues is our biggest issue. And I, I keep trying to look for evidence that it's being taught in X amount of schools. Like, because if you, I, I, I follow James Lindsay, um, even though I really don't like following him, but he'll share, <laughs> he'll share anything, like any mm-hmm. anecdotal story, he'll share it. I'm like, okay, well, if we have millions of schools and you have one story of a teacher giving their kid an Ibram X Kendi book, like, I, I don't, I don't think that warrants like thousands of people talking about it. You know right. what I mean? So that's kind of where I'm at is people are mm-hmm. creating tribes and certain things aren't as big of an issue as we think they are, or some people think they are. Yeah. And I think that proportionality is a fair critique. So people will sort of say, well, this is the thing that I'm worried about. I don't care if it's the most important thing. It's the thing that matters to me. But I think for the question of assessing, like, is this a, a moral panic or like a threat to Western civilization, as some of these folks will claim, <laughs> like you have to assess this, these proportional kinds of questions and when you do look at the evidence it does seem fairly thin on the ground and then like there's also you know you were talking about like microaggressions with mcwhorter and mm. I, you know i think it's good that people be more aware of the way that they can like it's very easy and i, I see this all the time as like a teacher right as a teacher you could ruin a child's day week month <laughs> with like a yeah. mean like a slight comment like you don't have to be harsh about it or something right so like i'm very cognizant that like how i behave towards other people can really put them out of sorts and i think you know microaggressions is sort of part of that but i also don't think that like it's something that a lot of woke people spend a lot of time actually talking about i feel that there's a lot more time spent freaking out about the idea that some people have at some point discussed microaggressions than there actually is evidence that a bunch of people are getting canceled for microaggressions or something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I forgot to ask McWhorter about the microaggressions thing, because that was the whole, co- that, that whole reason I asked him uh, was about the spectrum aspect, right? Like there's a difference between accidentally or not even accidentally, even if you purposely do a microaggression, like just something small, that's different than calling someone a flat out racial slur, right? right. That, that There's a major difference. So that's what I want to talk about. But uh, yeah, you bring up a great point that you know it's not this huge sweeping thing but i think what's interesting with with what you're talking Mm -hmm. about as a teacher like when you say that i remember my first grade teacher 
making me piss my pants in class because you wouldn't go to the pat, but uh, wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. Like mm-hmm, that stuck mm-hmm. with me, right? I remember sure. certain things. Petty like, authoritarianism. Yeah, certain things stick out. But going back to our conversation about addiction and free will, how much personal responsibility does a person have? That's where I'm in the anti woke uh, agreement of, you know, if if there's too much emphasis on like the what we what we say and don't say right because i i always ask what is this person's intention right were they intentionally trying to be harmful like Mm -hmm. if i kept calling somebody by the wrong pro by the uh by the wrong pronoun i'm a dick right i'm a dick Mm -hmm. come at me criticize me whatever but if i accidentally do it that does not warrant a twitter mob you know what I mean? That doesn't mm-hmm. warrant saying mm-hmm. this is a terrible person because I need to realize, I need to realize as a, uh, just for example, a fat balding guy that I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, when I, uh, when I went to the store the other day, this guy, um, I held the door open for him. He's like, thanks big man. Right. I could take that as a microaggression, but I'm like, Hey, fuck it, whatever. You know, some mm-hmm. people might find mm-hmm. the term big man endearing. So there's certain, there's a certain personal responsibility. I feel that we have where we have to be like, Hey, some people are going to, uh, accidentally offend us and we got to kind of get over it. Yes. We can try to increase awareness because I'm a huge mental health advocate. I, I, that's my thing, if you will. Right. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but I also try to give people the benefit of the doubt and be like, okay, what is their intention? Are they trying to be mean? Are they trying to be a jerk? Are they trying to, or was this just a mistake? Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I mean, it does. And it's, it's something that I think you see quite a bit in actually how people really genuinely behave. And this is why I really worry about like the sort of anti-woke part of the YouTube realm where you have these people sort of constantly posting react videos of like people freaking out on other people like the reality is most human beings i think have no chance of having a seriously negative interaction with somebody because they misgender someone else like and this this concerns me because i have students who come to me who are like i'm really nervous about misgendering people or something like that like it makes me anxious you know that this could potentially happen and i could you know hurt somebody or get in trouble or something like that when the reality i think is you know, they're never going to have that situation. Even if they do, it's going to be a non-starter. It's going to be like, you use the wrong gender, the person corrects you, yeah. and you move on with your life. Like, I I grew up in theater. I have actually misgendered people on the job, right? And, yeah. like, nothing happens. Like, they say, actually, I prefer they. And it's like, fine, great, on with our lives, right? So, yeah. you know, I really think... I I worry that, again, just like the kind of outrage machine that is just about gossip, you know, there is this tribal outrage machine around anti-wokeness and, you know, everybody can pretend, oh, well, what I do on Twitter isn't who I really am. But like you're doing that stuff for a marketing reason, right? You're doing it because you're pulling people into your brand and that makes it part of your brand. Like if you're a different person on Twitter, then who you are on Twitter is part of your brand, in my opinion. Yeah. So, uh, so shameless plug, but the, the Mm -hmm. new book that I'm currently working on, it's all about, uh, how we're manipulated in ways that we don't realize. Right. And one of Mm -hmm. them is, uh, one of them is that, uh, creating that bubble and, uh, sitting in those, uh, uh, in those 
realms of these people who create a brand. Like that's one uh, chapter I'm writing about in the book where, like you said, like a YouTuber who makes these constant reactions of the woke, or like uh, you've seen that Twitter account, uh, Libs of TikTok, right? Sure, if yeah. I follow Libs of TikTok and I don't actually talk to a liberal, that's all I think they are, right? But, it, but here's the thing. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen like those Jordan Klepper clips of him, like going to Trump rallies and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I always try to remember, like, this is Comedy Central, right? They are editing that to show me the worst of the worst, the dumbest of the dumb, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's an mm -hmm. argument to be had that if you're at a Stop the Steal rally, like a year after the election, like there's something going on with you. But I have to realize that they're showing me the worst of the worst. And it, it is just as bad of me. Like, I'm no better than the people who follow libs of TikTok if I think every Trump supporter is that QAnon mm -hmm. guy who th you, you, you see what I mean? So mm -hmm, we're being sure. we're being manipulated by putting ourselves in these bubbles uh, at this point. Like it's 2021. I I don't understand how people don't know how these algorithms for social media work. Um, the more you like something from one creator, you're going to be stuck in their bubble. The more I like a YouTube video, their stuff's going to keep getting recommended. Stuff like theirs is going to be recommended. Next thing I know, that shapes my reality. So again, going back to why I read such a diverse range of books, why I have such a diverse range of guests on because I I am constantly afraid that I'm going to get caught up in a bubble without even realizing it because mm -hmm. nobody in a bubble raises their hand and says, I'm in a bubble, right? right? Everybody in here is purely for my confirmation bias. We all agree. And that's how I like it. I, you know, like we need, it, it takes extra effort to get outside of your bubble and realize that it, that is not the world just because you follow some accounts that show you the worst of the worst, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, let me, I mean, sympathetic to all of that. And I want to just push on you a little bit here because as uh -oh. I was listening to like your McWhorter episode, like you were talking about his book and how his book changed your perspective on him. I haven't read the whole book. I did read the parts that he released initially on Substack. Mm -hmm. And he says that, you know, it goes beyond those things, but like those were very polemical texts. Like, yes, he's not, calling for the imprisonment of teachers the way that James Lindsay is, but he is calling them pretty extreme, like zealots. Like he is suggesting that people are trying to indoctrinate your children in ways that are harmful. Like that is a pretty extreme position that it felt like he wasn't really successfully backing up, at least in those versions. Maybe he does better in the book, but I guess I'm curious to know what was your impression? Because it seemed like you said your impression about him changed having read the book. What in the book sort of convinced you that he wasn't just kind of a slightly more well put together version of that? So uh, on my YouTube channel, I used to start out every video saying, hey, welcome to Rewired Soul. We talk about the problem. We focus on the solution, right? Like, uh, let's let's compare McWhorter to Lindsay. Lindsay is just out there screaming into the void. These people are trying to indoctrinate your kids, arrest the, like go arrest the teachers. We're about to all become, uh, you know, victims of communists or communism or socialism, whatever, right? Like, he doesn't have any realistic solutions. When I got to the end of John McWhorter's book, he recognized, like, I originally thought that, uh, because all I really knew about John McWhorter, aside from his linguistic stuff, was his conversations with Glenn Laurie. And uh, I personally think I criticized them in one of my uh, pieces on Substack. When mm -hmm. those two get together, uh, it's it's bad, right? They, they right. don't push against each other and stuff like that. Sure. I, think, I think John sounds like he's of the same mindset as Glenn, but if you talk, but if you talk to John aside from Glenn, it's not as bad as Glenn, right? Okay. So when I got towards the end of John's book, he says, like, 
I would think that John McWhorter's like, hey, racism isn't a problem. Any black kid from any background can go to college and be successful. Racism isn't an issue, right? But reading the book, he pointed out, he, he cites the research. He's like, yeah, there is racism. There are problems. Black people do face these struggles, but I don't think the culture wars are the answer, right? Mm -hmm. um, I had Charles Love on recently too, and I thought I was going to be button heads with him for an hour and a half. Um, and I disagree with him on a lot. He's way conservative compared to me, but he does acknowledge like, hey, there are issues with uh, underfunded schools, with kids in poverty and stuff like that. So if we can recognize those things together, I think we can uh, uh, find similar solutions, right? But mm. for example, one of the things that I loved about John's book, because I don't feel like it's talked about enough when we're talking about uh, uh, what Black people deal with is... Mm -hmm. There is a problem within black communities where to be smart is acting white. And that, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how we address that, right? But if you're growing up in the hood and you're trying to do good in school and your friends are like, oh, why are you trying to act white? Why are you trying to do this, right? Charlemagne the God, um, I have my issues with him, but he wrote mm -hmm. a good book about how he got shit from his friends once he started succeeding. And uh, I forgot what the name of the book was, but uh, she's a philosopher and she talked about these issues of raising yourself out of poverty and leaving other people behind. Those are conversations that 1000% need to be had and I don't see them. So I, I respected how he brought that up. You know what I mean? That one's, that's very funny to me because like I've been reading a lot of critical theories of various critical race theory, all these sorts of things for this PhD for the past year and a half. They talk about this stuff. Like they talk in detail and, and like they talk about the challenges that marginalized individuals face having to navigate these weird personal social expectations on top of wanting to succeed. And they also talk about how like how black people in this country in particular have been voraciously trying to educate themselves in, in you know, despite any of those kinds of challenges. Right. Like there is there is very much of a, like a, a thoroughgoing strain within stuff like CRT encouraging and promoting that kind of stuff. But I, my feeling is these same folks like McWhorter and, and to a larger extent, folks like Lindsay are going to say, when those people talk about it, they're doing it in a way that infantilizes white people or, or infantilizes black people or like, you know, treats mm. them, you know, as, you know, easily manipulated or something like that. When they're all also trying to like having the honest conversation about that kind of problem that you're describing. And it's I guess it's frustrating to me because. I don't ever hear anyone citing McWhorter to talk about how we have to address systemic racism. I hear them yeah. citing him about the first couple of chapters where he it's, says it's that woke is a religion, it's, right? It's the branding. Like, it's, yeah. it's all the branding again, you know? Yeah. And that's, but I, yeah. Go ahead. I guess, I, I guess the challenge I think is there's a, I feel like a bit of a Mott and Bailey here forms where I want to I want them to acknowledge that like they are doing those other things and working with these individuals who have these more extreme views and in doing so are, in my opinion, undercutting their more salient points and contributing to a moral panic. But it feels like instead you get this like, well, I do talk about this some at the end of the book or something like that, <laughs> yeah. even if no one ever really gets there in their in their conversations. Yeah. So, uh, you know, something else I love learning about uh, since, you know, my experience on YouTube is just tribalism. Right. John, let's let's go. Uh, let's stick with John McWhorter. If John McWhorter tweeted out, you know, hey, I think uh, 
I think, you know, so-and-so from my tribe is a little off on this one and isn't bringing mm -hmm. light to the systemic issue, John will get shunned by half his audience, right? Right. So people are de-incentivized if, if you go against the grain. Um, and that is a major issue because, you know, there are people within uh, John's audience who are going to read his book, right? Well, there's a large portion of them who only looks at his tweets, might listen to his conversation with Glenn. And I think Glenn, mm -hmm. like, I would love to talk with Glenn because I, I had uh, a guest that he had on, uh, Laura Bazelon, who does a lot of, uh, uh, she's a lawyer, uh, law professor. And, and Glenn Laurie often neglects, like, he's always like, we need more black fathers. And if you're going to not talk about how black men are arrested and imprisoned more than other races, you need to shut the fuck up about black fathers not being around because we need to right. quit locking them in cages if we want them to be around. So, but anyways, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I do no, think, no, I think that, that's totally fair. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that they need to call each other out more, which they don't. So going back to your article that you wrote, I, I am somebody who used to be such a, a fan of Sam Harris, but I have started to dislike him over the years. But I will say, I will say, even though I 100% I, I agree that he's tribalistic without realizing it, he's created a brand, which he won't admit, but, but he's better than most at calling out people within certain circles. Like that is where I think I'll give him credit because I don't see anybody from the anti-woke movement doing it. They'll stay silent. I've had some of them talk to me about it in private. And I'm like, then fucking say it publicly. Say it to your tens of thousands of followers. Like, mm -hmm. say it, you know? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. that's going to help us um, be less polarized and realize that there's more nuance to these conversations. But nobody wants to piss off their tribe because it can hurt their paycheck, too. Right. No, I totally I, I agree. And it is, to varying degrees, I will say, a challenge on all sides, even though I think it is uh, it becomes more problematic when people don't think they have this problem, right? It becomes easier uh. to be your blind spot, right? <laughs> if you're in a place where you don't think you have them. But look, we're, we're getting way, way over time here, and I, I could talk to you about this for a while longer, obviously, but I wanted to give you one last question before I torture you. Um, you know, I think you've done a good job here of, of sort of conveying where you're coming from. Um, and I would like to hear if there's any other things that you think that someone like me, who is more woke sympathetic with all of the complexities that those words leave out, blah, 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 right? What could I be doing more of or what could my my group be doing more of that you feel like would help? Because like you are like my target audience for things like that post-tribal article. You're the folks that I want to like hear what, where you're coming from without having you get red pilled into like climate <laughs> denial or something. So I will, I will say, I will say this, and, and this is only because you've been uh, pushing back on me for so long. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll do you the same respect. I, appreciate uh, that. I, I, uh, I think we talked about this a little bit on my podcast uh, when you were on too, but you and your buddy, uh, crap, his, I, I always forget his name. Deontologist. Oh, uh, Sam. Sam. There we go. So, uh, both of you, like I watched your guys' debate on CRT with the insane people, right? <laughs> and I was let, like, holy let's shit. Let's not be too ableist about it with the individuals yeah. who have challenges. Yeah the, yeah. yeah, the individuals, yeah, who act. They act a certain way. Uh, sure. you, yeah. you guys, you guys keep your calm. You guys have nuanced conversations. But when I follow, since I follow you both on Twitter, 
I feel sometimes you guys fall into that category of if I pulled mm. your last hundred tweets, they all look the same. Well, yours is a little sure, bit sure. better because you've been taught, but I think your only saving grace is that Dune came out recently. So you mix it up. Totally moral luck. Dune bit. came out and it saves my content stream. You're not, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if I uh, like Sam's piece, like uh, if I'm just scrolling through right here, he does have a little skateboarding video. That's cool. But he shared like Tim Pool. He'll share screenshots of like James Lindsay, JD Van you know what i mean so absolutely that's that's where i get i get concerned and i just when what what i always try to do is no matter how much i like or dislike you i always try to think of it from the your your worst enemy what are they seeing Mm -hmm. right so that's the only thing i would say so like for example we were just talking about calling people out like i like if I were you, like if you did, for example, come across something that you thought, like if Nicole Hannah Jones said something ridiculous and you just said, hey, I think this is a little ridiculous too, because mm. there's people like me who might find as both siderism and I had to get past my fear of that, you know, but mm. I wonder if you, if someone like you or Sam doesn't recognize that you might be avoiding calling people out because your side might come give you some shit. So that's, yeah. that's, that's my little totally. thing. Well, and like, even if we're not actively like avoiding it, I do think there's a reality of you're not seeing those things because they're not getting passed around your community as much. And so you're not having as much opportunity to speak out on. And, you know, Uh, I do try to follow, right, some folks who are critical of people like Nicole Hannah-Jones so that, like, you know, if there is something like that, I can say, yes, this does seem, you know, like an overreach to me. Yes, this Kaepernick video does seem kind of cringe, stuff like that. Um, (laughs) I I think there is value to doing that. You know, I think people have anxiety that it will get weaponized against their community but i do think we have to sort of overcome that anxiety and and play fair but i also i I agree that like you know i i really try to be critical of the moral panic stuff but not not let it dominate too much all the things like i want to have fun i want to talk about philosophy and things too so yeah yeah, all of that yeah i i I think like uh i've seen some of your conversations uh like you had with like angel the other day you Mm -hmm. you gave him a little bit of a criticism you guys had like a Mm -hmm. twitter conversation and i think people forget that you can like twitter sucks for having conversations but it is possible right we could say like hey i kind of disagree with you i i just got to figure out how to do it in 280 characters but uh i think we've also kind of demonized the kind of both siderism because i read so many books i love books on decision making Mm -hmm. and the number one thing everybody says psychologists everybody is you know be able to admit when you're wrong be able to be flexible in your thinking the problem is i feel as a culture it gets used against you so mm-hmm. for example if there's somebody that like if i was in your position aaron if there's somebody that you've backed for years now and then you had one criticism of them somebody who is your enemy will take that they will save it somewhere and they'll mm-hmm. use it to label you as a hypocrite oh, rather oh, it's, than it's holding. For, it, yeah, it's for sure happened actually. <laughs> I've, been, I've criticized on the left and that's been fun, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I get what you're saying for sure. Um, yeah. this, has been, this has been a lot of fun. Sadly, I now have to torture you a little bit. Um, so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Uh, for folks who are just joining us, we're not familiar. I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to define what real means and you cannot <laughs> in any way. Real or not real. All right. Are you ready? 
I'm going to do it better than anybody who's ever been on your podcast. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see the, the confidence is high at the beginning. So let's, let's, uh, let's just to find out, just to check the things here. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So we have, we have to check, right? I know you're confused, but it's a philosophy podcast. Uh, so let's find out what things are real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality? Real. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Oh, not real. <laughs> Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? I don't like I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I, I meant to before we did this, I was like, I was like, I'm gonna go through like the last 15 ones he's done. And mm -hmm. I didn't. I got tied up writing something, but uh mm -hmm. but yeah, no, I I found myself wanting to explain myself. But you yeah. know what? fuck it let the audience judge me if they want to ask you know where to find me and, and we That's can dive right. into it <laughs> the important thing remember is the stakes are much lower than they feel when you're actually doing it for some reason yeah uh so chris this has been a lot of fun i really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff one more time twitter handle such things yeah uh best way to find me twitter and instagram at the rewired soul youtube channel the rewired soul the rewired soul on Substack, uh and the podcast is the rewired soul but um yeah just follow me everywhere i give updates i'm currently working on that next book i've been i was uploading five episodes a week of the podcast but since i started working on the book i've got a lot a yeah, because I read so much. Addictive personality, much, eh? Exactly. I, I go, I go into stuff. So best place, just follow me on social media. Keep up to date with all the wacky stuff I'm working on and trying to figure out. All right, great. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding. I'd like to thank Aaron for being a friend in my head. Dude, fix the vote. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Create voting districts in Covina, California. Fight for democracy and end the theocracy. And Chad T. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, 
please check out my other show, Flossers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, whatever urge you're feeling, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.